episode 64. We, the people. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. Well, you probably guessed from the title of the episode what this one's about. It's about the U.S. Constitution, which starts with the amazing line, We, the people. And though the U.S. Constitution is being ignored and circumvented at many levels in our world today, it is still the very best design of a government that was ever created. Before I get into the Constitution itself and how it came to be and the amazing minds behind it, I want to point out that in a way, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution are two pieces of the same idea. You can kind of see them as one document in two parts. The Declaration of Independence declares the ideals of a group of people who are about to leave a tyrannical government and start a new one for themselves. And the Constitution is the working out of those ideals. In the Declaration, it says, But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and provide new guards for their future security. What they were essentially saying there was, we are removing ourselves from this tyrannical government, and we're going to create for ourselves a new government that will protect us from tyranny. The Declaration was the first step in this process, the step of throwing off such government, and the Constitution was the second step, providing new guards for their future security. The two documents are the working out of one ideal, the ideal that government exists to protect the rights of all its people, all its people, not just a powerful few. And it also includes the ideals that government should be limited and controlled by the people, not the other way around. It's the idea of a social contract as described by John Locke and others. There's a contract, a deal between the people and their government. And when the government stops upholding its end of the deal and stops taking care of the rights of its people, then it is the people's right and responsibility to get rid of that government and create a new one. So the colonies have come together. They've thrown off the British government and they fought a difficult seven year war. And now they need to have some kind of union between all the individual colonies. Remember at this point, each colony was its own sovereign state. And though they had all sent representatives to the Continental Congress meetings, that meeting wasn't a government in itself. It was just a committee of people trying to figure out a way to work together. But they realized pretty quickly during the war that for the Central Committee to have any kind of authority, they would need to form some kind of binding agreement between the colonies so that the central government could do things like raise taxes to pay for the army and the navy. The Continental Congress came up with an agreement known as the Articles of Confederation that was a sort of national constitution and sort of not. Really, it was more like a treaty between all 13 independent states than it was a document that created a real central government. I'll come back to the document's problems in a moment, but I want to mention that the thing that the Continental Congress was most trying to avoid in drafting the Articles of Confederation was that it was trying to not in any way overrule or override any state's individual sovereignty. 
That is, it was trying to ensure that the central government did not have any control over what any one state chose to do. This was because, at the time, they were very concerned with tyranny, and rightly so. Strong central governments, like the one in Great Britain which they had just thrown off, declared their independence from, could easily become too powerful and begin to take away the rights and sovereignty of any individual state. So the Articles of Confederation granted to the central government, which was basically the Continental Congress, the responsibilities of creating and funding an army and navy, negotiating with other countries, and settling disputes between the states. The problem is the Articles didn't grant the central government any leverage at all over the states, so that when the central government, for example, asked for funds for the navy, the states could just say, no, sorry, no. Or if the central government negotiated a treaty with France, for example, the individual states could choose not to abide by it. The Articles avoided tyranny, but they left the colonies with an absolutely useless central government. And then, in 1786, there was an uprising in western Massachusetts. It's known as Shays' Rebellion. It happened in Massachusetts, but it also affected some of the neighboring states. And they asked for help from the Continental Congress to put down this rebellion. But Congress was unable to raise funds or an army to do anything. This is going to affect the development of the Constitution, but I'll come back to that. Daniel Shays, who the rebellion was named after, was a Revolutionary War veteran, as were many of the other participants in the rebellion. They started the rebellion as a reaction to the tax collection laws and policies of Massachusetts, which strongly favored the rich merchants in Boston. Almost 4,000 men rose up in rebellion. Shays had returned from the war, having not been paid for most of his service, and he came home to find himself deeply in debt for taxes and fees that had not been paid while he was off in the army. He was ordered to go to court, and a judgment was rendered that he needed to pay his debts or face jail time. He began to organize others who were in the same situation. Here's a quote from one of the guys in this rebellion. He said, I have been greatly abused have been obliged to do more than my part in the war, been loaded with class rates, town rates, province rates, continental rates, and all rates. He, mean, he means taxes there. I have been pulled and hauled by sheriffs, constables, and collectors. I have had my cattle sold for less than they are worth. The great men are going to get all we have, and I think it is time for us to rise up and put a stop to it and have no more courts, nor sheriffs, nor collectors, nor lawyers. I have a lot of sympathy for these soldiers, and I often feel in a sort of similar way. I'm taxed myself on my income. I'm taxed on the property I own. I pay sales tax on everything I buy. I pay homeowners association fees, which are basically a tax, and I'm taxed by a school district that I haven't even used since my kids don't go to public school. None of these taxes have ever gone down. No, of course, they only increase year after year. And most frustratingly, it feels like I have no voice in most of them, that they're decided at a level that I have almost no input into. I mean, who agreed to this? I know all of my friends and neighbors feel the same way, and I imagine that everyone does. And so I ask again, who agreed to this? How did it get this way? And it seems like there's no positive change in sight. It's only going to get worse as more and more freeloaders ask for more and more help, and these centralized institutions grow and grow. 
And as they grow, they become less and less accountable to the people who are actually paying the taxes. Can you imagine the amount of effort it would require right now to mount an effective tax protest against any one of these taxes? This is the problem of centralized government, and this is the problem of tyranny. It grows and grows, and it becomes less and less accountable. So like I said, I have a lot of sympathy for Shays and the other rebellious soldiers. But there is another side to that. Shay himself was indeed in debt, and it was wrong, but there was some justification for the actual taxes. Massachusetts, for example, had to pay for its militia. The merchants in Boston had also suffered financially from the war. Many of them had just paid for things out of their own pocket, and many of them were in debt too. Some of them owed money to France, for example, and France wouldn't accept paper currency from Massachusetts as payment. They would only accept hard currency. So to raise hard currency, the merchants, who in the end financed a lot of the politicians, pressed for taxes to be collected in hard currency. But hard currency was scarce, especially in the rural areas. So everyone had someone that they needed to pay back after the war, and no one could issue new currency or new debt. So things are pretty tight all over. And this all illustrates an important principle of government. There's a very difficult balance between the ability of a government to maintain public order and enforce law and do the things that government needs to do, and the need of the government to protect individual rights and liberties and not oppress its people with taxes. We live in a society that does need some governing. And to have any kind of effectiveness at governing, a government needs to be able to collect taxes and enforce that taxation. If there was no enforcements, no consequences like jail, no one would pay their taxes, no one. So the government has to be able to tax at least a little. That being said, the weight of injustice does seem to be much heavier against Shays and the other soldiers. So they rebelled against the tax collection process and policies. And though their rebellion eventually failed, it did somewhat change the policies of Massachusetts. But the bigger upshot was that Shays' rebellion catalyzed the delegates of the Continental Congress to take another look at the Articles of Confederation. So in the summer of 1787, 55 delegates gathered in Philadelphia to take a look at making some adjustments to the articles and make the central government a little bit stronger. But there was a group of men who wanted to make a more substantial change. Now this group eventually comes to be known as the Federalists, a group that wanted a much stronger central government and a totally different design to the government. Before the convention formally started, a group of these men met at Benjamin Franklin's house in Philadelphia to discuss a plan to get rid of the articles completely and create a new document. This group included George Washington, James Madison, James Wilson, and a guy named Governor or Governor Morris. Governor was actually his first name. He was not the governor. Anyway, Governor Morris. And the group also eventually included Alexander Hamilton. John Adams, as well, leaned towards federalism, though famously Thomas Jefferson was against it. But the fact that Washington and Franklin, the two most famous, popular, and widely respected men in, the, in all of the Americas, participated in these meetings, that was incredibly important to giving the emerging plan some respectability. Now, this group faced a really daunting task. No one wanted a central government that was strong enough to become tyrannical. No state wanted to give up its sovereignty. 
people still had in their minds the words of the Declaration of Independence, that all men were created equal and endowed by the Creator with unalienable rights, and that governments shouldn't be able to take those rights away. But they needed a stronger central government and to be able to protect the whole group of colonies and to negotiate with other countries, and they needed to have a government that could settle disputes between the states. So over the next four months, they wrote and rewrote drafts of a new constitution that would organize or constitute a new central government. What they came up with was amazing. It was an incredible balancing act of distributing power, but still making a useful and effective central government with checks and balances that were designed to keep the government from becoming tyrannical. The new constitution created three branches of the central or federal government. First, there was the legislative branch, whose job it was to write laws. This is the Congress, which is made up of two houses, the House of Representatives, that's the lower house, and the Senate, that's the upper house. And yes, this is very consciously modeled after ancient Rome. Why do we have an upper house called the Senate? Because Rome had an upper house called a Senate. The Roman lower house was called the Assembly, but ours is called the House of Representatives. I'll come back to the structure of Congress in a minute, but I need to mention the other branches first. Congress, the legislative branch, as I said, writes the laws. And then there's the executive branch, which has the responsibility of enabling and enforcing the laws. So, for example, Congress passes a law saying that all restrooms in the country must be accessible for handicapped people. Now, the executive branch has an agency called the Occupational Safety and Health Agency, or OSHA for short. And that agency is responsible for sending someone to the building you have just built and making sure that your restrooms are accessible for handicapped people. And if your restrooms are not, OSHA can revoke your building permit or your occupancy permit, and they can begin to levy fines against you for violating the law. And eventually, if the fines are unpaid, OSHA has the right to eventually take away your legal ownership of the building. So Congress writes the laws and the executive branch enforces the laws. The executive branch also includes the office of the president, whose job it is to preside, hence the name president, over all these federal agencies, including the armed forces that are out there enforcing the laws created by Congress. And lastly, there's the judicial branch, which is the court system for resolving disputes about the law. So back to the OSHA example, if OSHA comes and shuts down your building, but you believe that your building does indeed meet the building codes for handicapped people, you can start a court case and try to get the court to rule that your building is okay. The judicial process is supposed to be impartial and it's supposed to only apply to federal laws. The judicial system is also a system for the states to resolve disputes with one another. So if Tennessee was like, for example, overtaxing Kentucky whiskey something like that, Kentucky could sue Tennessee in federal court to make them take down the taxes. The idea of having three branches is that no one branch could become too powerful. Each branch would seek to preserve its own areas of responsibility and its own power, and they would sort of basically compete with one another, and that way would limit each other's power. The idea comes directly from Rome, with the balance of power that they had between the Senate, which had consuls, and the Assembly, which had tribunes, and then a somewhat independent judicial system. They also had a, a constitution of sorts, the Twelve Tables. I talked about this way back in episode 15, and probably also in episode 18, which, if you can believe this, those aired more than a year and a half ago. 
so much for a short walk. In addition to limiting the power of the government by having three competing branches, the power of Congress itself was also limited by having two houses, the upper house, the Senate, and the lower house, the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives was responsible for creating laws, but those then had to be also approved by the Senate. The House of Representatives, as its name implies, is composed of representatives from each state, and the number of representatives for each state is decided by the population of that state. So a big state like Virginia or New York back in the days got more representatives than, say, New Hampshire. But to balance that out, each and every state has only two senators. So the House is decided by population, but the Senate is not. And originally, the members of the Senate were not voted on by the general population of a state. They were chosen by the state assembly. So the people didn't get to vote for their own senators, right? The, the legislative body of that state decided who was going to be the senator. Let's say the state assembly of New Hampshire, for example, would put two men into the federal Senate. And at least at first, the job of those two men was to look out for the welfare of New Hampshire. Right? It's the New Hampshire senators. Their job is to not be senators that represent the federal government. They're representing New Hampshire within the federal government. It's a great idea. It prevents the big populous states from completely controlling the federal government because the smaller states can come together in the Senate and defeat any laws that would benefit only the big states. And that's how the Senate was originally set up. But nowadays, we also elect senators by popular vote, just like we do the representatives. And I doubt that nowadays there's even one single senator that cares more about the welfare of his or her home state than they care about preserving the little kingdoms that they rule over in the Senate and the federal government. That's also true of the people who have been elected to the House of Representatives nowadays. They don't really represent their people anymore. They end up representing the entrenched power structures of Washington. I mean, really, if I called my senator or congressman and I said, hey, I'm being overtaxed. Do you think anything would be done? If every single one of us, all the citizens of the United States, called and said that, do you think anything would be done? No, not a chance in hell. They'd keep overtaxing us. But back in 1776, that was called taxation without representation, and it led to a pretty dramatic rebellion. I've got to do a whole other episode sometime about how the federal government went wrong, and I'm getting way off my original point here by complaining about how things are now. Back when it was created, the Constitution did do an amazing job of balancing powers and trying to prevent tyranny. One other key piece of that was that the Constitution of the federal government was supposed to only apply to regulating trade between the states and with other countries. And the Constitution explicitly says the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to, to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. That's actually part of the Bill of Rights, Amendment Number 10. It's not part of the body of the Constitution. But again, this is an amazing way of balancing power. The idea is that each state is still completely sovereign over its territory and that the federal government does not have the right to enforce any laws within the states, only to regulate the trade between the states. So if the state of Virginia has a law requiring handicapped accessible bathrooms, but the neighboring state of Maryland does not have such a law, well, the federal government does not have the right to force Maryland to comply with Virginia's law. 
Now we come back to the OSHA question for the building that you are building. Why does the federal government get to have any say in this? Why not your local state government? You're not doing any kind of interstate trade by building this building, are you? No. Why does the federal law apply? Well, it really doesn't. And at first, that was the way everything was working. That was the way it was designed to work. But we've lost a lot of that now. The federal government wasn't intended to be able to write laws that applied to all things like that. That was supposed to be left up to the states. But nowadays, because of the way things have fallen, OSHA can come and impose its will upon you for not having handicapped accessible bathrooms, even though your state has maybe said nothing about that. After the Constitution was written, drafts of it were shown to the Continental Congress, and there was a very strong reaction that the Constitution needed a Bill of Rights to protect the rights of individuals. And remember, these are unalienable rights, not rights that the government has granted us. We have these rights simply because we're alive. Good government exists to protect these rights. So very quickly, the writers of the Constitution saw that they needed to add a Bill of Rights that guaranteed that the federal government would not take away these individual rights. And remember, this is key. Remember this. The federal government is not granting these rights. It's promising to not take away what are considered to be inherent inalienable rights. James Madison was one of the key writers of the Bill of Rights, and even though he first did not want to add them to the Constitution, he saw the value of it. So the Bill of Rights was written as 10 amendments to the main body of the Constitution, and it includes these things that the federal government shall not do. It's actually more than 10 things that it's set, though, in the form of 10 amendments. Amendment 1 says that Congress will not establish a state religion, nor will it prohibit the free exercise of religion. Congress will also not prevent freedom of speech or freedom of the press, nor will Congress prevent the right of the people to assemble, nor the right of the people to petition the government for the redress of grievances. That's all in Amendment 1. And to enforce this, there's Amendment 2, which says that the federal government will not infringe on the right of the people to keep and carry weapons. Going to have to do a whole, whole podcast on that one. Amendment 3 says that the government will not quarter soldiers in anyone's private home. Amendment 4 guarantees the right to not be unreasonably searched without a warrant. Amendment 5 guarantees the right not to go before a court unless a grand jury has come together and said it's necessary. It also guarantees the right that no one needs to testify against themselves in court. Thus the famous saying of taking the fifth, which means you're not going to respond to a charge against you. You're pleading the Fifth Amendment. Amendment 6 guarantees the right to a speedy trial and a jury of one's peers. Amendments 7 and 8 also have to do with trials, and they include the famous phrase guaranteeing that no cruel or unusual punishments can be inflicted. Amendments 9 and 10 guarantee that the powers and rights not specifically mentioned in the Constitution are reserved to individuals, to the states, or to the people. After the Bill of Rights was added, the Constitution went back to a style committee who rewrote parts of it for clarity and style. And at this point, Governor, Governor, whatever his name was, Governor Morris, wrote what is known as the preamble, which goes like this. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. 
Man, what a great opening. We the people. It's not a government that's creating a government structure for itself. It's the people creating a government for themselves, using elected representatives, but still, those representatives saw themselves as exactly that, representatives. They represented their people. They didn't see themselves as politicians. They saw themselves as representing the people back home in their states. And the, they saw themselves as responsible for conveying the wishes of their people. And again, here you see the conclusion of the idea from the Declaration of Independence. They're creating guards for their future security. That is, guards for protecting the rights of individuals, the people who make up the nation. And that's what it was, a nation, once the Constitution was ratified. It was a nation, not a collection of states. The Constitution was adopted by what had become to be known as the Constitutional Convention on September 17th, 1787. It was signed by 39 men, including James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, Governor Morris, and notably Benjamin Franklin. Six of the signers, including Franklin, had also signed the Declaration of Independence. Man, that's a heck of an exclusive club right there. On the final day of the Constitutional Convention, Benjamin Franklin, who was then 81 years old, was asked to give the closing address. He said, You assemble a number of men to have the advantage of their joint wisdom. You inevitably assemble with those men all their prejudices, their passions, their errors of opinion, their local interests, and their selfish views. From such an assembly, can a perfect production be expected? And then he went on to say that the wonder of it all was that the delegates had managed to create a system of government that he said was approaching so near to perfection as it does. And he acknowledged that there were several parts of this constitution which I do not at present approve. But he said, the older I grow, the more apt I am to doubt my own judgment and pay more respect to the judgment of others. Franklin concluded by asking each of his fellow delegates to doubt a little of their own infallibility and step forward to sign the Constitution, and 39 of them got up and signed it. It is pretty amazing that, again, a document drafted by various committees turned out to be such a nearly perfect document. It achieved an amazing balance of powers, leaving most powers in the hands of the states and preserving the rights of individuals, while creating a government that was indeed strong enough to hold the country together. It didn't hurt that the first president was George Washington, who was popular throughout the country. And that's what it was now. It was no longer a loose collection of states. It was indeed a single unified country that had an amazing, well-constructed framework to govern it. The U.S. Constitution is the best example of a government that balances all the competing interests while still protecting both the states and the people from tyranny. We have, unfortunately, over the years, let a lot of that protection wane. It faded a lot during the Civil War, then again more during the Depression, and even further during World War II. And then we just gave up on it entirely after 9-11. Gonna, like I said, have to have an episode devoted to just the many ways that we, the people, have given up our powers that were reserved to us by the Constitution that we, the people, wrote. Interestingly, 
Thomas Jefferson thought that the Constitution ought to be renewed by every subsequent generation so that every 20 or 40 years, there ought to be another constitutional convention in which each state had to re-ratify the original Constitution and Bill of Rights. I really like that idea. The idea that together with the rest of my generation, we would have to elect genuine representatives who would have gathered together in a convention to reaffirm that this was indeed our intention in how we were going to be governing ourselves. As I said, I think we've drifted again towards tyranny, a tyrannical government that's far more abusive of its citizens' inherent unalienable rights than the British government was back in 1776. We all know that somewhere, in some nondescript government warehouse somewhere, there's a computer scanning its self-generated transcription of this very podcast episode, seeing if I'm in some way a threat to our government. I'm not, really. But the Constitution, yeah, well, it is. It's a threat to tyranny. That was its whole point. After the Constitutional Convention was over, a woman supposedly asked Benjamin Franklin, So, doctor, do we have a democracy or a republic? To which Franklin supposedly replied, A republic, if you can keep it. Next episode, we'll look at France's attempt to create its own republic. Spoiler, it doesn't go that well. In 1787, I'm told our founding fathers did agree to write a list of principles for keeping people free. The USA was just starting out a whole brand new country. And so our people spelled it out, the things that we should be. Put those principles down on paper and called it the Constitution. And it's been helping us run our country ever since then. The first part of the Constitution is called the Preamble and tells what those founding fathers set out to do. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility. Ourselves and our posterity do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America.